Hi, I'm Liana Downey, founder of Common Ground on Climate, and I think we can be having better conversations about Australia's future, conversations that bring us together to protect what we have. On this podcast, we're talking to a wide range of people to understand more about where we are, how we got here, and we're on the hunt for one big idea to safeguard Australia's environmental and economic future that we can all get behind. So join us and let's build common ground on climate together. I'm here today with Amanda Tattersall. She is a researcher and community organiser who's really driven by the question of how social change occurs. She was the founder of the Sydney Alliance, and we'll talk a little bit more about who they are and what they do. She runs the Changemakers podcast, and she's also a researcher who's investigating change-making strategy at the University of Sydney's Sydney Policy Lab. Welcome, Amanda. It's lovely to have you here with us today. Thank you for having me. Amanda, I'd like to start with a question that I always ask everybody, which is if you could wave a magic wand, what would Australia look and feel like in 20 years' time? I find, it, I find that quite a hard question to answer because I'm not a futurologist and I am a researcher. And so I, I worry about wishful thinking about the future. But if I did, you know, run with the invitation, it would be a robust and rich participatory democracy. We would have enormously powerful, thriving organisations facilitating involvement in the major issues and questions that we have going on, whether they're around climate change or transitions around age demographics, like what are we doing as we age, we would have just active participation in all aspects of life. And so as a consequence of that robust democracy, most of the elements of our beautiful society would be accountable and and excellent, best in the world, right? We'd have the great education and a great healthcare system and a great response to climate change and spectacular clean jobs with amazing employment conditions and an amazing city that allows public transporters as well as for as as a key way for people to get around and excellent housing that provides people with wonderful living standards that is also a five-star green things like that but the instrument that i think is most important is the participatory democracy where people being active in organisations because um, across the 25 years in which I've been involved in different forms of social change, people being actively able to seek out solutions for themselves to the problems that they face is the key ingredient to a healthy society. So let's talk a little bit more about that. Participatory democracy probably makes sense for people, but maybe not if they might think in Australia, we, we all have to vote. So we're participating in a democracy, which of course is not the same in every other country. Talk more about what an active participatory democracy really looks and feels like for us. Sure, there's been the sort of erosion of rights around voting and universal suffrage and participation. And certainly we should be grateful for the rights that we have in a a liberal democracy like Australia. But voting is clearly not enough. Like occasionally dropping in to the political process every three years to choose one of the political leaders on offer who frankly don't seem to be that exciting on either side of the political spectrum isn't the kind of democracy that I'm talking about. Like I'm talking about a democracy where we feel like we've got the space to have a say on the things that matter to us. And so when we're struggling with childcare, our kids are young and we can't afford it, that we have 
the space to be able to be involved in doing something about that policy and making it better and making it responsive to the needs that we have. Or same with our education system. For instance, my son has autism and I've had to do a lot of work at my school to really ensure that the school is responsive to his different learning needs. That kind of activity where you sort of step up and get involved in stuff, even though you don't feel like you've got time, but you do it because actually being involved helps shape institutions in powerful ways. If we had that kind of activity all over the place, that's a kind of the participatory democracy that I would like to see. That said, and I'm sure we're going to get into this later in the conversation, there's not just one way for people to participate in our democracy. I've done a lot of research on this question. I've been involved in a bunch of different organisations too and have found that there are a, a series of knowable strategies, five discrete strategies, dare I suggest, that define the different ways in which people can be involved in their democracy and understanding the differences between them and the different strengths and weaknesses of each of them is really important to be effective in our participation in democracy too. Can you, you know, give us some examples of some of those, please? So my colleague and myself have done five years of field research across the world, cities across the world, all the continents, and these are the strategies that we identified. The first is playing by the rules. Now, most people will have done this. So voting is this, but so is participating in a consultation. So is signing a petition. So is even lobbying your politician using the infrastructure of liberal democracy to seek to influence liberal democracy. It's a pretty big space, right? That's one strategy. I think that's what lots of people think about when they think of advocacy. The second strategy is mobilising. Now, this is what you often see when you look at the news and there's a rally, right? There's thousands and thousands of people. I saw that when I was in Hong Kong during the Hong Kong protests. We see it often. Black Lives Matter protests more recently, where lots of people gather. This form of people power is about numbers. The more people you have mobilised, the more powerful it's seen to be. And so that's another form of people power. But there's more, right? The third one is called organising. And organising is the kind of uh, work that we did at the Sydney Alliance. And it is about developing leaders to solve problems for themselves by working through institutions. So it's a more institutional take on social change. And often involves working in coalition with groups of people who are different to you. So in mobilising, you draw people who already agree with you together. So my favourite example of the mobilising I did was the war in Iraq protests a million years ago, where 250,000 people in Sydney gathered together to protest the wars. We we're gathering together people who already agreed with us, providing an outlet. Organising is different. Organising is about identifying people who are different and building relationships between them so they can make change in unusual ways together. So the Sydney Alliance included the Jewish Board of Deputies and the Catholic Archdiocese and the Nurses Association and the Cancer Council of New South Wales and the Muslim Women's Association, the Arab Council of Australia. These organisations just don't traditionally spend a lot of time together and they didn't necessarily see that they had uh, a lot of things in common. But by building relationships and then exploring the kinds of things that were going on for their members, and there were half a million members in the, across the membership of the 50 organisations in the Sydney Alliance, they did find they had things in common, like concerns around housing or concerns around transport. So that's organising. The fourth one is called prefigurative power. And that's a, you know, speaking of 
confusing words. That's definitely a confusing word. So think of prefigure to imagine the future and to present it in the work that you do today. This has got quite a nice history in Sydney. So I'm a Glebe, just next to the University of Sydney. A series of feminist activists occupied a couple of houses that were empty and created the first women's refuge in Australia called the Elsie's Women's Refuge. And in doing so, they stopped playing by the rules and asking the government to create a women's refuge because the government wasn't listening to them. And they stopped protesting and having demonstrations about the issue. They just made it happen themselves. And in doing so, they made the impossible possible by actually demonstrating it was possible. And they used their own labour, sweat labour, to make it happen. And that kind of envisaging the possible through your own labour is the fourth form of power. And then the fifth form of power is called parties, political parties or platforms. Now, this is a somewhat difficult issue, but it is definitely a form of people power that people can use and have been using it for a long time. Lots of social movements over the last 200 years have formed political parties. And interestingly, not in Australia, but internationally, parties and platforms have been a really important part of change. So in Barcelona, where there's been really amazing sort of progressive housing policies and changes, it all came from this interconnection of doing all those five strategies, but most particularly a housing activist, this woman, Ada Kalau, becoming mayor of the city and then implementing some of these changes. So they're the five strategies. They've all got strengths. They've all got weaknesses. They're really hard to combine, but they are different ways in which people can participate in democracy and achieve you know, outcomes that serve their interests and needs um, and the common good. So... There's so much in that. You talked about ways in which as individuals, by participating in some of these mechanisms, we can get some of our own needs met. You talked about childcare or better educational provisions for your son with disability. Do you think that participatory democracy gets better answers overall? If more people are participating in something, do we get better answers to problems? Yes. (laughs) And I say it without hesitation. Like I just am not the kind of person who says, who's a Plato benevolent leader kind of person. Like I don't think that we get better results by having a king on the hill making good decisions for us. I think that the best decisions are made for our world when people are involved. I also think that when we don't do that, politics fails. So for instance, let's take climate change. There's been a lot of expert advice about how to make decisions around climate change. And in some countries, that's landed and it's worked. But in some countries, like Australia, the expert advice has not been met with and integrated with the needs of of those with lived experience, especially those who are fearful or most going to be most affected by the kind of policies that are going to be brought in to, to deal with climate change. And by not featuring and facilitating the participation of those communities in the process of policy change, um, we've seen something else emerge, which is a politics of backlash and fear. And so what you have is, firstly, I think that it's, yes, you get the best policy outcomes when people participate. But second, politics falls apart when you don't do it. Yeah. And in a way, I guess I share that perspective very strongly because I've had the same experience. I've done a lot of strategy work in government and in the private and the non-profit sector. 
and my experience is the more people you have involved the better your answer gets because you just miss things otherwise you miss how something's going to feel or how it's going to be experienced by people who have really different perspectives so if you've only got people from the city in a conversation you're going to miss out on how things feel in a rural context but similarly if you've only got one aspect of a rural experience you're also going to miss stuff I certainly share that but I guess it's more through my own lived experience in organizing and planning and seeing that the more people who are involved and especially the more people who are going to be impacted by the work the better the answer but it's interesting from your kind of research and academic perspective that you've got the same kind of there's there's now if you come into the university everyone's totally excited about the idea of co-design right so nature which is the top science journal in the world in 2018 wrote an article by its editors saying um, that the best research is co-produced between researchers and communities that it's, it's generated together that communities and researchers coming together to identify research questions is superior to researchers doing it on their own and now it, it is the predominant way in which people are trying to look at answering questions now not every piece of research lends itself easily to these questions but when you bring that co-design perspective to problems in inverted commas you just like what you said new um, questions emerge so for instance on the issue of autism for instance Researchers have been looking at autism, wanting to do genomic mapping for decades and thinking that's the most important thing. Bring autistic researchers into the room. That's not the most important thing for them. They want research about the lived experience of autism, about negotiating educational and social environments, right? They want you to look at different questions. And so you actually just get a different, that doesn't mean that genomic mapping is not important. It just means that it's a partial perspective. And as as someone who's interested in developing great knowledge so we can develop great policy, so we can have a great society, you want that full perspective. And that's the power of bringing these you know, different communities of people together. Yeah, I've seen that myself firsthand, how people who are directly impacted, their, their input just shifts things really in very different ways because you've just been looking at it from a really narrow perspective. But it's interesting, my experience in government, it's also true of nonprofits, that even though, as you're saying, the research shows that you get better results and better outcomes the more people you involve, my observation was while there was a willingness and we were able to do it in government, it was not the norm. We had to push hard against a lot of kind of established cultural approaches, which were what I would consider fairly light touch consultation not genuine consultation but we'll give you an opportunity to, to give us feedback on a plan that's already been developed or we might might have a, a couple of conversations with people and I think that is for two reasons one is what I heard from many non-profits over and over again was we don't want to raise people's expectations and I heard the same thing in government there's sort of an assumption that if you go and say to people who are living on the streets, for example, what do you want in terms of housing, that they'll ask for something impossible and you can't deliver it and you'll just end up disappointing them. And my experience is that actually that's not the case. Most people can understand that there are limitations to funding and can actually engage in a pretty 
useful kind of discussion about what might be possible. But I think the other thing is it is hard and slow when you're trying to involve big groups of people. But it's much easier for five people to go into a room and sit around a whiteboard and come up with a plan than to genuinely get, as you did with the Sydney Alliance, all of those different groups in the room. And I can imagine it took a long time for them to get to a a level of trust where they were really comfortable in working together and identifying their opportunities. So it can be much slower. Is there a shift now with technology that is making some of that engaging of people or surveying of people easier to do that means we're seeing more of these kinds of shifts to involving more people in decision-making? Yeah, it's interesting. Pre-COVID, I was a bit of a tech sceptic in some respects because I love the power of a face-to-face conversation and feel like, especially when you're working with people who are different to you, you can't really have uh, a difficult conversation, sometimes a a really sincere, deep conversation with someone not face-to-face. And and I still think to some extent there's a truth to, to, to that. But COVID, I think, has shown us that even if technology still has its limitations and certain conversations and certain things, certain breakthroughs happen only face-to-face, that Zoom creates opportunities for connection that are extraordinary. So I, heading into COVID, I had a couple of workshops gently convening a, a new project at the University of Sydney called The Real Deal. And it was looking at what could be done here around the question of the sort of polarisation between climate and jobs. Is there a space for that piece of work? So it's uh, 2020, we'd had the 2019 election and and that project was just getting warm (laughs) as Peter said into COVID. And in some way, under normal circumstances, if we hadn't had those workshops, I reckon it probably would have fallen apart. But we had enough face-to-face trust that people jumped on Zoom and the project became stronger by working on Zoom and created powerful connections between organisations that wouldn't have happened but for the technology. It's a national project. So we had people from Western Australia as well as everywhere, as you can imagine, but people who would not normally have participated in a coalition like that very easily. And whereas in the past, we would have been thinking, oh, we're going to fly everyone in, fly everyone out. That's the only way we can do these meetings. It just became habitual that everything was on Zoom. It created a, a robust connection between these groups really easily. So it made national organizing and sort of connection between people really powerful. And even now what's happening, you know, we've got communities organized around this project in Gladstone and Geelong and Narrabri and Alice Springs and Perth and Western Sydney. Again, traditionally hard and expensive to pull those communities together and Hunter Valley, sorry, all those communities. But now we just jump on Zoom and are able to exchange and learn. So I think that when it comes to forming trust and building relationships, there's nothing beats face-to-face. And I, I don't think that that's not going to change. But I think that technology can supplement connection and coordination in really rich ways that has been, the pandemic has been terrible. This is a a little silver lining that's shown us about we're human creatures, we want to connect with each other and we have learnt how to do it in new ways, in ways that I think will linger. 
Yeah, as you were talking, I was reflecting on one of the tremendous challenges for us in Australia is just we are so big as a country. I certainly saw this in our schools. The sense that the further away that people were geographically from Sydney, in our case, the more they felt like they were not part of the conversation. So the further away they are, the more ignored they felt. And when we got out and spent time in those schools and in those communities, there was a sense of just relief that somebody was there and asking people. And I I just think technology allows you to be, if you've got the internet connection, of course, that's not true for everybody. If you're in Wilcannia, you can be part of a conversation just as easily as if you're in Glebe. So I'm interested to learn a little bit more. You talked about the issue of fear, the issue of jobs. Anytime anyone talks about change, it's frightening, right? That's a fundamental human response to change is fear of the unknown, anxiety. And when we start to talk about changing our economy as the world shifts towards a zero emissions economy, there is a lot of fear that comes with that. And a lot of communities who are very reliant on fossil fuels, who have a lot of fear around what that will mean for them. And I think for the reasons we've just talked about, don't always recognise that there are other people who are also concerned about them, who might not be in their city, but who are worried about them and want them to have a fair go if there's a change in transition and to be treated with respect and fairly. What are you hearing from those kinds of conversations? What are the questions that people have in those different geographies? What are the things that they're telling you about jobs, about climate change, about what they're worried about, what they're excited about? We're just beginning. Come back to me in six months and I'll have more stories. What we're doing at the moment in is in all those communities that I talked about is building teams of people who can begin the process of listening. And just like with the Sydney Alliance, it's trying to build really diverse teams of people who are not normally working together. In Gladstone, union leaders with First Nation leaders, with environmental leaders, with church leaders who can build enough trust between each other to go out and and do the kind of listening work that can surface both people's fears but also ideas and hopes for what the the change that they really concretely need whether it's around jobs or or other issues two things are important the first thing is that we're not coming to this issue just thinking about climate change because that's actually not necessarily the only thing that people are thinking about and people are overwhelmed by change they're overwhelmed by technological change they're overwhelmed by changes in the economy that are going to see their businesses shift they're worried about demographic change and they're worried about climate change and so we're wanting to create spaces where people can feel like they can have a say in the future that allows them to get some level of control over the change now as you said most people are not expecting things to be perfect right but they do have some aspirations that they want to be able to concretely try and move in their communities and but they don't have a space for that because people are treated as atomized, as you described. They go along to a consultation, which is a kind of fake consultation where they're asked to tick a box of stuff that things have already been decided for them. We want to set up the process where the communities 
this diverse network of people in community are actually setting the questions that others are responding to rather than reacting to a decision that's been made by others outside of that community. So that's the process, right? We know it takes time. It's so funny in the climate movement, people get really agitated around this question of time because we're running out of time. But my response to that is if we don't do this properly, we, we will not be able to build a transition that is in the that that people are able to be in some level of control of and it takes this kind of work to do it and we're investing in this process to be able to create space for people to be able to have a say from the ground up the second thing is just about the issue is that you can try and go and have a conversation with a under valley miner about climate change but it will go nowhere because there's no trust right in a like someone like me in, in a city white woman rocking up to Singleton to have a chat about how serious climate change is. It'll just be absolutely disregarded. But a listening process that is beyond climate change, that's about someone's life, that can surface all the things that people are worried about. For instance, say the conversation was with me, can surface the fact that, oh, the school is really not providing proper resources for their child and their child has autism, or whatever other issue, that the hospital is inadequate finding out what is going on in their whole life rather than just seeing climate change as an issue, seeing the community as the issue and climate change is something that's happening to it, but investigating and, and seeking to understand what's going on for someone in a broader sense is a much more effective way to then later on be able to have a conversation about an issue like climate change. I think that too often politicians experts, they get their sales hat on and they go in and run a sales campaign around why people should care about something rather than listening and asking what people actually already care about and working with that. And that's the difference with this kind of process is turning around how we have worked on some of these tricky issues and stopping talking for a little bit and starting to listen. Yeah. And it's why we're starting with that question of what do you want because my observation and conversations I've had is that it doesn't really matter where you sit on the political spectrum or if you're at one end or the other what you have in common is a lot of anxiety and when I ask people what are you worried about the worry is actually the same it's about what the future will look like and it's about wanting kids to be safe and have opportunities and there might be a bit more of an emphasis on kind of the environment or the economy, but actually they're, they're often pretty shared. But when we talk from when we talk from positions rather than from what we want, that's when people bump heads. And I'm guessing that was what was happening in the Sydney Alliance. Was that sort of the focus on not just what to what are each group trying to working on, but really understanding what is it that your members want for. Yeah their community and for their kids and for their family and friends and that that often is pretty common we often want the same sorts of things yeah or, or even actually we we want things in complementary ways so one thing that happened really early on in the Sydney Alliance so we had the Jewish Board of Deputies and the Nurses Association and some of the organizations and we taught people how to have one-to-one -one and group conversations because actually we're pretty crap at talking to people. We tend to go in and say, so what do you do? What do you care about? Whereas actually the, that's not the right question. The, the right question is why do you do what you do and why do you care about whatever you're working on? Because that opens up 
an exploration about the deeper things that are going on for people. So when people from the Nurses Association and others started having conversations with people in the Jewish Board of Deputies, the issue that came up was this: there was a, a like a group of women, about sixty women, who were middle aged and called Women Power, and they were worried about aged care. They were all dealing with their parents, who were going into aged care facilities or having home care, and they were incredibly anxious and stressed about that issue. Now, you wouldn't have picked it. I reckon if most people looked at the Jewish Board of Deputies, they wouldn't have gone, oh, I know what they care about. They care about aged care issues. But that was the thing that was driving these meetings that they were having, was driving their participation. And then the nurses went, oh, we're the union that represents nurses in aged care facilities, and we've got thoughts about how to make them better and how to strengthen them. Maybe we can start working together. And so by having a different kind of conversation between you know, a union and the Jewish Board of Deputies, these are really different kind of organisations. They're different on the political spectrum. One is a religious organisation. One is a secular organisation. They're just not natural bedfellows. But if you ask different questions with different conversational skills, you can have a much deeper conversation about connection and interests that can drive collaboration and change in ways that are really powerful. So those two organisations ended up working together on issues around aged care and drawing others from the broader alliance into that work. So it takes a particular type of conversational skill to be able to draw it out. If the nurses went in even and and just were sales pitching about their campaign, ratios of nurses to patients, I don't think it would have landed. Because they didn't do that. They went in and just explored and tried to understand what was going on for these women. A really deep sense of trust was created that then made the change possible. That's really powerful. That suggestion, that shift for not asking what you do, but why do you do what you do and why do you care? I'm going to use that bit of advice and ask you the same question. Why do you pursue this work? of participatory democracy? I I have lots of different ways of answering that question. I sometimes feel lost in how to answer it. But part of why I do this kind of work comes from, I guess, how I was raised. Sometimes our story starts before we were born and my grandma was feisty, made feisty by living in poverty when she was in North England between the wars. Her father was killed for gambling debts and her mum and her brother were very vulnerable and poor and learnt about the importance of being active in political life and pushing for change and working with others from that experience. She was our babysitter-in-chief as I was growing up, so I learnt all about those experiences every time I would spend the weekend at her place. So there's a little bit of that that I carry with me as I have chosen to do this kind of work. I have always been interested in making the world a better place. And part of that comes from my own personal experience. Initially, I thought I was going to be a lawyer and going to argue for social justice and hats off to all the lawyers who do. But I, and I enrolled in my law degree and so forth, but I ended up getting really sick when I was in second year of university, so sick that I wasn't sure I would get through it. I'm sure some of your listeners have had a similar experience. That kind of life or death moment is very catalyzing and clarifying as to what you're doing on the planet. And so that happened for me when I was 19. And it was at that time that I 
moved away from the idea of being a lawyer and I didn't really have a plan, but I just started getting more involved in the kind of organisations that my grandma used to. So I started to get more involved in those kinds of organisations. And I have ever since that time after I recovered. I just sort them out. And then I guess the third thing that is my energy in this kind of work is that I've, for most of my 25 years of being involved in different forms of social change, whether they be social movements or community organising or playing by the rules or researching those things or doing podcasts about those things, I, I, I feel like for a lot of it I was on a quest. And I was firstly on a quest. Initially, I was on a quest for finding the perfect model. Oh, we've got to have the perfect demonstration. And then we failed to do that around the war in Iraq. And so it was like, well, we've got to have the perfect community organising approach. As beautiful as the Sydney Alliance was, I also found some of that work difficult and not enough. And now in my work at the university, looking at questions of social change, I'm driven to try and understand how best people can be involved in making the change that they need. So not just, I want to make the world a better place kind of thing, but how do people make their world a better place, which is a different question and actually not a very easy one because I, I, I have learned through bitter experience that it's really actually very hard to make change in the world. I have been terribly unsuccessful in many ventures. I've learned through bitter experience things of what not to do, but I am motivated by those early experiences in my life to pursue it. People are at the centre of that work. You don't do change for people. You do change with people. And that is by far the most successful way to achieve change, but also for people to change their lives. People get involved in, in this kind of change where they are part of the change. It changes who you are. It's changed me. My life has been richer for being involved in things like the Sydney Alliance and being in relationship with groups of people across Sydney who I never would have known but for the fact that we built this enormously diverse network of citizens. I was listening to a, a podcast the other day about somebody who spent a lot of time in Vanuatu living in a small village, and he was talking about the thing that he most missed when he was in Australia was the, the deep sense of community and the sense of being known. Everybody recognises you during the day, says hello, interacts with you, and he was talking about when he comes back he feels not part of a community. And what you're describing, in a sense, is building of community across boundaries. And that's such an important social need. And I think one of the challenges we have is that as humans, we're pretty good at operating in groups of about 150 people. And there's some pretty interesting research on companies that talks about how performance drops when groups get bigger than 150. And so it's interesting when I hear you talk about what you got out of the Sydney Alliance, it sounds like it's a sense of knowing and being known by other members of the community and having a deeper sense of belonging to something. Yeah, utterly. The thing is, we're not in control of a lot of things, obviously. I wasn't in control of whether the war in Iraq happened. I was trying to organise a protest, but ultimately you try hard and you see where it goes. We're not in control of what happens with climate change. We'll try as hard as we can. But what we are in control of are the relationships and connections and community that we build. 
no one can take that away from you. <laughs> you know what I mean? If climate change becomes hard, those connections and communities are going to be the thing that sees us through those moments. They're going to be the most lasting, most important thing that we do. And at the same time, they change us. They make us better people. We see ourselves in different ways by having those community connections. And sometimes you can measure impact and you can measure KPIs and you can do all that sort of quantitative stuff, but those qualitative measures that come from connection and relationships, they are truly important. And I think that sometimes they're undervalued in all the sectors. They can be undervalued by government. They can be undervalued by market players. They can be undervalued by civil society. And I guess in part, I've seen my mission as trying to surface the importance of that work because of how important it is. Yeah. And I think too, you know, when I think one of the things that has dismayed me about the nature of the conversations around climate change in Australia, and I really saw this in the US, was as you think about positions and polarised positions, rather than thinking about what is it that you are trying to achieve together as humans and in terms of community, you see divisions not just between communities, not just urban or regional, but you divisions within families, deep divisions with pain associated with those divisions. I saw a lot of that in the States, families who couldn't get together for Thanksgiving because the political divide had become so divisive. And it's such a loss, right, when people have those fractured relationships that extend into families, into holidays and special occasions. And what makes us human is, is those families and community connections. Then we kind of all lose. Those ideological divides are the hardest ones to overcome because they invite you to come at the question of what you believe in, not why you care about it. And they can be so fracturing. If we don't have those grounded relationships, a different way to have conversations with people across difference, that we won't make the change. Australia in 20 years, as you asked at the beginning, won't look so nice. There's so much research to show that people who live long have strong community relationships. They feel like they belong somewhere they are known and they are understood. It's such a fundamental human need. And so it's interesting to think about it as we think about these things that are happening to us, as you say, that feel out of our control. And as we think about needing to change in response, if we can do so in a way that builds rather than destroys community, well, we're going to get better answers as we've talked about, but we'll also be happier in the process. Yeah. Totally. Now, you talked about the different types of approaches. You walked us through those at the beginning. Do you have a perspective on which of those approaches is more effective than another in a particular circumstance? Or what do you advocate out of all of those approaches for people who are thinking about change? If I was to think about the five forms of power in relation to Australia in climate change, I would say that my argument is more that we need to do all of them. We need to play by the rules. We need to use the legal system as much as we can. We see students and, and others running cases through the courts around climate change. It's spectacular stuff. Playing by the rules can yield fantastic results. But the difficulty of playing by the rules is that you're playing by someone else's rules. And so often, just like the consultation suggestion you made earlier, 
you don't win because they're not, the, the rules are stacked against us because they're written by someone else. So you can't just play by the rules. You've got to mix playing by the rules with other strategies. I love the student strikers and they're mobilizing, right? Like it's extraordinary to see high school students. My other son has just hit year seven and is now eligible to be a proper student striker. And it's spectacular for him to feel a sense that the future is something that he can create and not just as something that's going to be created for him. It's extraordinary. But just having mobilisation after mobilisation is not going to achieve, you know, achieve a solutions-based agenda. One of the weaknesses of mobilising, it's really good at saying no. It's less less good at saying yes, because in the no, you can gather a lot of people in the yes, you often struggle. So great, let's keep mobilisations of people happening around climate. That's great, but it's not the only place for change. The organising space, I think, is actually where a lot more richness could work. I think that there's a lot of climate campaigning that happens within 10 kilometres of the eastern seaboard of Australia, and there's less climate campaigning that happens in trickier, harder to reach places. And the more we could have disparate, complex, interesting movements of surprising groups of people working together on issues around climate, but also not necessarily directly on climate whether they're around heat and the effect that heat is going to play on workforces in, say, Western Sydney, which is increasingly hot, or on issues like hospitals in the Hunter Valley as a way to be able to build trust with a broader base of people. Organising could be something that's more broadly done in the climate movement, inviting in different groups of people to participate rather than just mobilising who we've already got. Some of that happens. There's some amazing groups um, that have been formed over the years. I think of Farmers for Climate Action as one of them. But we could do more. Those who are worried about climate change could do more about reaching out to people who haven't been involved and seeking to listen um, to what they care about and building a relationship with them rather than the sort of sales work that happens more with mobilising. I think prefigurative work is really powerful in climate. We sometimes see that with innovative work around renewables solar farms and so forth but I think we could also do more on that too so the idea that we could model the change we want for what a a climate future would look like imagine if we could start getting housing developers to build precincts that were all green buildings even without extensive government subsidies do it ourselves how can we model the kind of change we need in a small way and that use that model to scale out the change that is possible And then finally, with parties, I just don't think that we're brilliantly served by our two major parties at the moment. I think it's interesting that the Voices for Movement has taken off around the country. I think that, which is a movement of independence modelled on the Indi group, I think that a shaking of the cage of how parties work and how people participate in parties will probably be a feature of future climate debates in Australia because they are the people who make policy and that matters. Now, the thing is, all those five forms of power don't always easily work together, right? The culture inside of political parties often bristles with that of mobilising and organising, right? So this is not like some Pollyanna presentation that sort of suggests that, oh, just do all those five things, they're all really simple and everything will be perfect because it won't. But it means that just as we need to reach out to different types of communities based on different interests, 
we need to have relationships with people in different places and we need to have relationships with people with different identities. We also need to have relationships with people who use different forms of people power in order to be able to make the change that's going to see climate change addressed seriously in Australia. Yeah, thank you. Lots of food for thought there. Lots of food for thought. And I think it it is a good call. I, I took two big things out of that. One is we don't just want the usual people at the table, which is where our conversation started, that the more people who are involved in a conversation, the better the answer is going to be. Because there is a lot of anxiety about the proposed responses to climate change at the moment, partially because people who might be impacted by them haven't had an opportunity to be involved in designing them in ways that make sure that their interests are represented. So if you leave it to a small group of people who've been driving the conversation to date, you're going to miss all those voices and we're going to miss building something that really works for all Australians. Um, And I think the other thing you talked about, which is interesting, I was thinking about an interview I had with a CEO of a big concentrated solar power plant who is probably a living example of business doing just that, saying we don't just want rooftop panels and we are going to build it, we're going to raise the capital, mostly private capital, not really government capital, and we're going to show what can be done with a really big installation and solve some of these issues and build up the proof case, but tough to be leading in some of those areas. Yeah, but we're going to need that. We're going to need entrepreneurs in the marketplace taking the kind of creative risks that social change uh, entrepreneurs have taken over the years too. We all need to be able to stretch out of our comfort zone. We've got the existential crisis that we never wanted, but it's on our doorstep. And it's a test for all of us. Can we be as creative as we need to be to make this change happen? And I hope that we've got the leadership across all the sectors, market, government, and civil society to do just that. I have moments of uh, real optimism when I realise people generally are great procrastinators, but that can mean that when people really realise that the heat is on, all sorts of amazing things happen when there's a clear understanding and shared understanding of the nature of the crisis, which I think we don't have at the moment. I don't think we've got a, a shared understanding in Australia about what climate change might mean. One last slightly provocative question. When you listed the people that you were out chatting to in these different geographies as part of the Real Deal work, I didn't hear you talk about mining companies or resources companies, and I was wondering whether that was a deliberate omission. So some of our groups in those communities are. So we're in conversation with Rio Tinto, for instance, in Gladstone. But I think what's really important in this space is where do you want to form the base? I think lots of people are talking to government and lots of people are talking to market players. But this question of of who is coordinating the people has just, oh, too hard. <laughs> Let's leave it aside. So my approach has always been bring the a broad-based network of organisations together who have vast, deep networks across a place 
build the relationships and connections between those people and begin to initiate a process where they reach out to their membership in conversation around some of these questions. So everyday people in that community know that there's a space they can trust to build solutions for themselves and that that, that space is then in relationship with those who have the power to make decisions. That makes sense. I think it'd be hard to make the case that business were not in conversation with government or at the table on these conversations already. So it's trying to invite people who are not yet at the table to be part of those conversations. It's been a fascinating conversation. I really appreciate your time and particularly that piece of wisdom about better conversations kicking off with why do you do what you do? I'll take that forward. So thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Thanks for helping us build common ground on climate. If you have a big idea all Australians can get behind, know someone we should talk to or want to join a respectful and pragmatic conversation about our future, please check out our website, commongroundonclimate.org.